Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Welcome back to our study of the Gospel according to Matthew. Today we're in the Sanhedrin trial of Matthew 26, verses 57 to 68. We're considering something of a climax of the story, as Matthew has described for us the rising action of the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. And predictably, this was greatly exacerbated by his coming to Jerusalem, to their turf, or as they would think of it, in the temple. We've seen the religious leaders angry with Jesus before, but for fear of how the crowds might respond, they've been unable to take any action. Uh, But now that Judas has betrayed Jesus by letting uh, the religious leaders know of Jesus' private location away from the crowds, uh, they think they're in a position to cast their judgment, or at least that's what they think. Uh, We've already learned that Jesus is the one to whom men will appeal in the last day, saying things like, Lord, Lord, did we not do many miracles in your name and cast out demons in your name? And that some people will hear Jesus say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. We've also learned just in uh, the last chapter, chapter 25, that Jesus is the great son of man who will sit on his glorious throne from where he will separate the world, separate all the nations as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats with the result of either everlasting life or everlasting punishment. Thus, uh, we, the readers, know that Jesus is the true judge of everyone in the world. What audacity, then, to read our text for today, in which these men presume to judge the Son of God and condemn him to death. Now, some have doubted the historicity of this event because it doesn't fit with what we know of Jewish Sanhedrin trial procedure. Now, in response, this information about the trial procedure of the Sanhedrin comes much later. It's in uh, this document called the Babylonian Talmud, which is written several centuries later, like in the 500s. But even if this document preserves tradition that extends back to the time of Jesus, there aren't any good reasons to think that the leaders always keep their own rules. In fact, the irony may be thick here, pointing to the corruption of the leaders. Let me just, before we actually read the text for today, let me read these rules from the Babylonian Talmud. They go like like this, quote, A verdict of condemnation could not be reached on the same day as the trial. No cases dealing with capital punishment were to be heard at night. A death penalty could not be passed except at a special meeting place in the temple. A trial could not be held on the eve of the Sabbath or the eve of a festival day. An attempt had to be made to find witnesses for the defense. According to this list, the leaders have broken every rule. The argument against the historicity of this account can only stand if we assume the very thing the Gospels call into question, namely the integrity of the religious leaders. So, uh, with no reason to think that this is not a historical event, and against the backdrop of the irony of what the, the way things are supposed to go, uh, let's read Matthew's account starting in chapter 26 and verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, 
where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Our passage roughly breaks up into three sections. There's the accusations against Jesus in verses 57 to 62. Then there's Jesus's quote-unquote defense in verses 63 to 64. And then lastly, we have the response of the Sanhedrin in verses 65 to 67. Now, you may recall from earlier in chapter 26, verse 5, that the religious leaders originally planned to prosecute Jesus after the feast because they didn't want there to be an uproar of the people. But then Judas's betrayal gave them the opportunity that they were looking for. But the fallout of this is that it means that they're left scrambling. They meet in Caiaphas's house at night, unprepared with any witnesses. Uh, the first several do not agree, which they should have really gotten their ducks in order, but again, they're left scrambling. Jewish law requires that at least two or three witnesses agree for someone to be put to death. And you can find this in Numbers 35, verse 30. Now, up to this point in the trial, Matthew has stayed pretty close to Mark. However, he differs in making these final witnesses in a slightly different category than the false witnesses that precede them. Now, let me just point out here that I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Uh, if you're following along in the King James or New King James, you might see false witnesses in there. We do have several manuscripts which have uh, this testimony as false witnesses, but the original probably did not have this. Uh, notice that the, the difference of, well, are these people false witnesses or not, may seem slight to you. But Matthew's change highlights what is correct about this testimony. Now, we don't have time right now to retrace the temple destruction thread that we've seen so far. But suffice it to say that this has been a prominent theme in Matthew. Moreover, we have seen in previous episodes uh, discussing texts like Matthew 16 and 21 that destroying and particularly rebuilding the temple are concepts related to being the Messiah. The Messiah is the one who would rebuild the temple. So we have here an implicit charge that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah and being the one who would rebuild the temple. But it's at this point that we still don't have any word from Jesus. And this probably echoes Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Caiaphas, at this point of the plot, it cuts to the chase and directly asks Jesus what he wants to know. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, this way of putting it is reminiscent of the expression we found in Matthew 16. You remember that scene, of course. It's when Jesus asks his disciples about the people's perception of him. Um, And then Peter correctly says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. How Caiaphas knows to ask this, we're not exactly told. It may be that Judas recalls Jesus saying this and Peter saying it and the, the the approval that he got, and so relays that to Caiaphas. The title, the Son of God, does have some overlap with the expression, the Messiah, but they aren't exactly equivalent. We've already seen in the calming of the storm scene that Jesus is worshipped as God because, as the disciples confess him, truly you are the Son of God. To be a great political liberator is one thing. And the mere claim to be such a person isn't necessarily the same thing as blasphemy. To be the person who's going to fight the Romans and destroy the enemies doesn't mean you're a blasphemer. But to be the divine son of God is another matter. Uh, But the Christ, the son of God, Caiaphas' words, are one way of putting it. Jesus then responds, you have said it. Now this is different than Mark's I am. You have said it affirms the gist of what Caiaphas is trying to say, but it may have the uh, connotation of that's not quite the way that I would put it. It's not a simple yes, It's uh, but it's not, let's put it this way. The best way to understand it is something like you're not wrong, but that's not exactly the way that I would put it. Jesus then describes his identity on his own terms with two allusions. The first is to Daniel 7, 13 to 14, where the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days and is universally worshipped when he takes his worldwide dominion. The second allusion is to Psalm 110. Uh, It's a text that we've already seen Jesus bring up uh, on his own as Messianic in his temple controversies. The Messiah, whose son is he? In Jesus' response to the Sanhedrin, he alludes to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Daryl Bach has the authoritative uh, study here in his book, Blasphemy and Exaltation in Judaism. He considers Jewish perspectives on blasphemy and zeroes in on competing understandings. Some think that certain figures are allowed or will be allowed to sit with God in heaven. Many, however, think that this place of of sitting in heaven is for God alone, and for any other person to claim it is to commit blasphemy. So by Jesus saying that not only he's the Messiah, but he's the Son of God, the Son of Man who will sit with God in heaven, is, in the eyes of his hearers, blasphemy. Uh, Before leaving uh, Jesus' response, we might well wonder what he meant when he said, from now on you will see these things. The statement can hardly be literal, since in the upcoming events, Jesus won't be seen in such a glorified light. Nor will it become clear to these religious leaders that Jesus is this exalted figure anytime soon. The commentators, uh, Davies and Allison, probably have it right when they say, quote, The reference is to the parousia. From now on, mean in effect, in the future. From now on, Jesus will no longer be seen as he is now. Rather, he will be seen when he comes in glory, seated on a throne and riding in the clouds. End quote. 
We also need to remember that here we're in a court scene. Witnesses have been brought forward. The prosecuting attorney has questioned the defense. And so what we would expect in a trial scene is that the defendant would, well, defend himself. Instead, Jesus responds in in such a way that only seals his own fate. The religious leaders mock his claim to be the Messiah, perhaps playing on Isaiah 11.3, which reads, He will not judge with the sight of his eyes, which was later understood to mean that the Messiah would have miraculous insight. But the Lord Jesus is no hypocrite when he's hit. He practices what he preaches. In fact, interestingly, the only other occurrence of struck, as in, who is the one who struck you, is in Matthew 5.39, in which Jesus says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, as these religious leaders mock and insult the Lord Jesus, uh, interestingly, another portion of Isaiah is being evoked. Isaiah 50, verses 5 to 7 come to mind, which reads like this, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who struck, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. The very people who mock Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, strangely, ironically, are in fact being used to fulfill the scripture, so that way Jesus is the Messiah. Now, this is great irony, and it will continue to characterize the rest of the proceedings surrounding Jesus' death. The wicked arrogantly think that they are in control, but the harder they fight against God's plans, the more they simply fall in line. Uh, Grasping for power to wield it in one's own hands is a temptation that the Lord Jesus flatly refuses. In the words of 1 Peter When he was reviled, he reviled not again, but entrusted himself to him that judges righteously. We would do well to aspire to be more like Jesus in this regard, uh, to be resolute in leaving matters to God. And yet, we need to resist the, the trap that Peter fell into when he said, I will never deny you. Our application must go beyond a simple determination to follow in Jesus' footsteps but also include the worship of the one who never failed, the one who willingly sealed his own death with his own testimony, the one who took the cup that was in front of him because it was from the Father and willingly drank it all. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu slash partners.